Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Code Youngstown podcast. This is Neil Primer once again, and joining me today is Joe Dunko, my co-host. Hi. And we have a guest today with us as well, Paul Soriano. Paul, would you like to introduce yourself, please? Absolutely. Well, thanks, Neil and Joe, for having me on the podcast. Um, you know, uh, yeah, so maybe I'll just kind of tell you a little bit about myself. Um, I'm actually at uh, kind of another transplant into the Youngstown area. Um, I'm actually here due, uh, because of my wife. So I've actually been coming to Youngstown, specifically Canfield, for about 10 years. Um, really love the area. But yeah, I've only been here for about six months. So kind of getting used to, thankfully, a slower pace of life than where I, where I grew up at, which is, uh, which is in Chicago. Um, so, so yeah, um, do I, you guys want me to kind of go into a little bit of my bio or, uh... yeah, uh, let's start with a little bit about, uh, we'll come from the tech side first and say, you know, what is it that you do now? What's some of your, uh, your job history and some of the tech stacks you've worked with, um, anything that you feel you, uh, makes your, your story interesting. No, absolutely. So I, I think so kind of a background on me. I started kind of into computers kind of early on. Well, maybe not so early, probably not when I was like four, um, but probably when I was about nine or 10, I remember going to the library and, you know, they had a Mac and this is back in the eighties and nineties. So I'm a little bit older. I feel old now. Uh, but, you know, I'd, I'd ride my bike to the library, you know, I, I'd go into the computer room. And I would just start working on my on the Mac that they had there. I think it was like a Mac SE or a Classic 2 or something. But I just remember falling in love with it. And so ever since I was 9 or 10 and just kind of growing up, really getting into computers and even into high school. And then after high school, I spent four years in the Army. And back then, they didn't have computer courses. So I was a network telephone switching operator because I was the closest thing that they had nowadays, you know, you've got complete cybersecurity fields in the military, which is fantastic. Um, but from the military, went to college and got my degree in math and computer science. Cause I thought, wow, I'm going to be a cryptographer and do like all the cool hacking stuff. And yeah, that totally didn't pan out, <laughs> ended up going into the corporate world right after college. So I thankfully just barely passed my, my math and computer science degree and kind of moved into the insurance world. And so this was back in uh, 2006. So in the military, I was doing network, um, kind of network and systems administration, as well as some security work with some military equipment and kind of traditional Windows NT4 and, and kind of the traditional enterprise tech stack, as well as military. In college, I, I was still doing systems administration and network administration, not so much in the security space, and then going into corporate, kind of got exposed into the kind of the support world. So at the my first gig, I was there for about eight and a half, nine years working in downtown Chicago and kind of bounced around in my company. So it kind of started off in technical support, kind of application technical support. And I actually reported into our SVP of sales, which is really interesting because I had not, even though it was traditional IT I wasn't reporting into a CIO. I actually reported into a business unit. So I gained a lot of experience and just, just understanding how business operated because I would go to these sales meetings and these business meetings 
working with business leaders, not necessarily IT. So I guess we really were shadow IT, but then kind of bounced around in different areas of the organization. So kind of a little bit from a good chunk of my time in level one and level two support, um, was also a product owner for a mobile app. So I ended up my way there and working with user stories as a business solutions manager, really understanding you know, what our sales force needed to build out several mobile apps and was responsible for that. So that was really good experience coming from support to do that, not knowing anything, but just really having the aptitude and just willingness to learn and then actually migrating or moving from there actually into a security architect role. And what's interesting is, even you know, I had gotten my CISP in security, you know, while I was at the help desk and, and working on a mobile app. But I, I always had my eye on security since my army days. So I wanted to kind of get back to that because it was a hot field. This is probably 2000, oh, geez, 10, 11, you know, when LulzSec and, and some of the other hacking groups started to come on the scene and, you know, just, just kind of want to get back into it. So then I pivoted and the security team wanted somebody who knew the business area. They didn't want traditional security folks that just knew pure security because they wanted to partner with the business. And since I had some technical experience, I'm still maintaining my certifications, kind of moved over to security architecture. And then from 2011 or 12, something like that, kind of moved over from, from my previous company to another insurance company. And then from there, ended up to where I'm at today, doing security architecture work. So kind of along that last seven to nine year journey, um, in security architecture, really building up that skill set in security. But then with my background and all these other things too, from operations, systems, administration, engineering, and now security, I feel like I had like kind of this broad view uh, of technology. But the one area, even though I, it was actually not in development until just the past two to three years, even though in college, I actually programmed in C and assembly and a lot of my undergraduate work was around coding and math, which is just horrible. <laughs> it's just, I'd rather do front-end work, front-end dev work than, than trying to code in math and you know all that stuff. Um, so that kind of brings me to where I'm at today, where I'm really focused on, well, originally security, and actually most recently, um, really focused on identity and access management, as well as infrastructure architecture, along with security architecture. So really thinking through things such as infrastructure as code, um, and then getting back into being a product owner, where I now have developers that are on my product team, we're actually just forming in the past month, where I now have to lead the identity product and really kind of building out a new product team. So kind of moving more towards uh, kind of the development um, aspects uh, of my career. Um, so yeah, that's kind of my story. I'm really, I'm actually pretty excited to get more into the development world. So. I mean that's that's great. I mean it sounds like he came up from uh, from what is a, a traditional uh, administration and IT background into something more focused on development now and getting into like the uh, DevSecOps style role. Um, so would you would you like to talk a little bit about how your your background really fits into uh, how it really fits into your development uh, 
your development habits and how you approach solving problems as you're working on on development? Sure, absolutely. And to your point about DevSecOps, the kind of the security architect hat that I wear now in my current role, really trying to think through and just understand um, the development lifecycle because we really can't secure things if we don't know how the code and, and applications are actually being built. Um, and so one of the things that I've really had to dive into is more than just the security piece is really diving into the actual development work. So really sitting in with developers, understanding how they code, and, and quite frankly, even me coding myself, because I think the best way for, for anybody on, on any team is to really go through the trenches and understand what the, the teams that you're working with actually going through what they go through. You know, my military experience, you know, it's kind of, you don't ask somebody to do something that which you can't do yourself, or at least, you know, have some knowledge of. So having done programming, at least in college, right, I was never a professional developer, but I feel that at least I knew, wow, you know, you, you have to open up code, you have to debug, you know, you're trying to make it work, you spend hours upon hours trying to get to code to work to only forget it's a semicolon or a library you forgot to add, you know, or, or something like that. But if you don't go through that experience, it's really tough to understand how to even secure that or just understand that world to help affect any change. Plus, think I, I also think too that you don't get street cred from those teams if you're, you know, if you're kind of kind of dismissing the work that they have to do or just don't have any understanding. So from my college days to even being a previous product owner back, you know, building mobile app and really cutting my teeth there because, man, that dev manager must, <laughs> if I don't know if he'll ever listen to this podcast, but he'd be like, wow, Paul really didn't know anything about being a product owner. But I think that's just everybody too. You don't, you don't know what you don't know. But over time, I started to learn, okay, this is how developers actually work and kind of bringing that experience to being a product owner today, even though it's not pure dev work, there's definitely still some infrastructure. What not if I put my infrastructure architecture hat on, I want to start looking at infrastructure as code. And so having had experience of working in the infrastructure side and systems administration side, I know what a firewall router, route switch, you know, systems administration, having that foundation allows me to then just build infrastructure as code. If you know how infrastructures are built, then you know how to code it. Basically, we, you know, whether it's Terraform, cloud formations, or something else, you have to understand the underlying, you know, technologies before you can actually write the code. So, you know, from infrastructure, you know, if if somebody's writing infrastructure as code, but they don't know how you know route switch actually works, or how firewalls work, or um, you know, basic systems administration, I think it'll be probably harder for you to really then deploy resources in AWS or GCP or Azure if you don't have foundational knowledge. So my varied background kind of helps me in all aspects of now just from a development perspective, especially infrastructure as code, that one's much easier for me to translate because I've done a lot in the infrastructure and security world. But on the pure development side, that's where I'm, I'm you know, kind of kind of continuing to learn and even develop myself. So even writing my own stuff in AWS, I think is important. Even in a management director role that I'm in today, I still have some, my websites are out there. I have GitHub and please don't laugh at my code, but I think that's important. So I think my experience has really helped me from an infrastructure's code perspective, but I think I still have a ways to go and continue to learn 
in a development because I really do think that that that's really where the future is going is everything is going to be in code. I completely agree. I, I I've been um, coincidentally today is the uh, GitHub's satellite. Uh, conference. Oh, is that today? So, oh, shoot. Yeah, it's, okay. it's actually today. So it's free. If you go to their website, you could watch it. I know this podcast obviously comes out after today, May 6th. But um, so that's not helpful to anyone listening. But <laughs> that that is a uh, uh, infrastructure as code is a really consistent theme in their, uh, their, uh, their talks, uh, especially because they're pushing like GitHub Actions and other uh, things because GitHub wants to take more more of an infrastructure role now that Microsoft bought them. But um, I, I find it really interesting that as someone who doesn't come from a uh, like a strict programmer role, um, that you find infrastructure as code more appealing than just I guess infrastructure as infrastructure. I don't know what the opposite of infrastructure as code is. Maybe someone can <laughs> inform me. Um, could you talk a little bit about, um, as someone with not a huge programming background, why yeah. um, you've, you've kind of been convinced there? I, I'm really curious to hear your opinion. No, certainly. And, and to your point, you know, I've, you know, when we talk about infrastructure as code, um, one of the things that, so I'll, I'll just kind of blurt things out here. I know it's a it's a podcast. So one thing that I think is very important is a, the cloud has definitely made that something we have to consider. So I think probably that's one of the key points. So for us at, at the company I'm at today, it's a strategic decision and architectural principle that we always look at things like cloud first, but it has to be cloud first if it makes sense, if that makes sense. So again, kind of, you know, how does my background and experience really help kind of drive some of this change? Being on the business side and understanding, being a business solutions manager, that, that we're at the end of the day, technology achieves business goals. And if we're faster at it, and if it's, you know, cloud helps us get become more agile and spin up resources a lot faster so that we can react to kind of business needs much faster. And so that's a decision that we made that we said, okay, we're going to go cloud first. But now that we're cloud first, and you know, I may be AWS certified and most of that stuff is done through the GUI, but I can't imagine trying to deploy 50 servers manually you, you know, on a GUI interface on AWS, right? Or, or policies on Azure, because we use Azure as well too, for you know, Active Directory and and different policies and access lists that we, we have to create in Azure, that's not going to be good at scale. So putting kind of like my management hat on, infrastructure as code is definitely a way for us to achieve scale much faster, but then we can also react to things much quicker because we are in the cloud. So from an infrastructure perspective, if we can deploy resources in hours versus days, or in some cases make changes in minutes, versus days, there's a lot of good business value there that we can react to things much quicker. Plus also too, you know, and there are, I guess back in my career too, you know, a lot of IT departments are being outsourced because things take too long or whatever else. In today's world, it's really easy for business units to basically just go consume 
you know, SaaS solutions out in the marketplace. If IT is not ready to move just as fast as somebody with a credit card to go get a SaaS solution, we're going to find ourselves out of a job. So again, that business mentality of we're thinking about things in a business lens and we're a service provider, well, we have to do things as as code because then we can react very quickly. So I guess in my mind, it was more of a business sense because now that I'm in a more leadership position and instead of just being uh, kind of like in the trenches all the time, you know, these are the demands that I see and we need to react quicker. Now, security also follows the infrastructure as code too, right? Because if the business goes, infrastructure goes, well, business goes, development, you know, teams also follow those trends too, being agile and DevOps, infrastructure follows, well, then security has to secure that. So that all kind of goes along together. So if <laughs> putting my architect hat on, I'm trying to drive where the dev teams are going and the business is going, I flip my security architecture hat and say, hey, my SecOps lead, we, we now have to start doing things as code as well. Um, so hopefully that makes sense too. And, and selfishly, it's also really cool to be coding because I feel like there's this aura with developers, like they're, they're really cool. And we get to be cool too on the infrastructure side, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, I, I also came up through something of an infrastructure DevOps background myself. Um, I, I would kind of like to hear what some of your impressions are, um, you know, being in a, a security focused organization and a security focused role mm -hmm. Um, what, what are some of the like really common security issues you see with the way, uh, people on your team or maybe newer people in your company are doing development and doing infrastructure? Like what, what are some of the kind of common pitfalls that you have seen people run into in your day to day? No, that's a good question. Um, I think for us, mis misconfigurations is usually one of the bigger things that, you know, that we'll encounter. So for example, you know, in AWS, you know, we're standing up a new security group, it's kind of done manually, or we're, you know, we're putting a NACL in place in AWS. Hey, we forgot to turn off, uh, you know, this particular port, or hey, why is 3389 still open, you know, to the internet, even though there's no 3389 on the box, which, you know, which is remote desktop protocol. You know, why is that open? Or, hey, we didn't restrict the IP ranges to only those servers that needs to access this box on SSH, right? So it's open to the internet and we don't use SSH keys to, to protect that or certificates. It's password only. So in my, that's one of the pitfalls that we see is it's just common mistakes, right? It's I'm just configuring this or I need something fairly quick. I just want to spin up this box. Oh, shoot. Did we, did we secure it? Is there an open port? Is there, you know, something that we had forgotten? Uh, you know, even like at this recent uh, salt stack, if you're familiar, there's a remote code execution vulnerability. And, you know, if you have a salt stack master out there that's open to the internet, well, you can easily compromise that box and you can start issuing commands to servers immediately. And that's misconfiguration where those boxes probably shouldn't be open up to the internet or at least secured in a good manner, but that's often missed. Uh, so, and that's kind of an example of a broader issue typically in security is, well, how do we catch those things? Well, that's where I can see infrastructure as code as an area where we can stop builds or um, we can provide, like in the Terraform world, particular modules or, um, or templates 
to these groups that can say, look, if you're going to deploy infrastructure, here's kind of the guardrail. So that's becoming more and more popular, at least in security, is here's the guardrails for dev teams or infrastructure teams or whomever to kind of build out your environment. And that's probably one thing on the infrastructure's code too that why I want to push that is then we know it's very consistent. We can have version control. We know when something is changing, that's change management, right? On the ITIL side, if you're familiar with infrastructure, we can adhere because we now have a a record of everything that's going in and what's changing and what doesn't. So I think misconfigurations is kind of a big thing that I'm seeing that we can catch with infrastructure as code. Um, Yeah, that's probably one. but I think, Neil, you might have more experience too. We're still relatively new in kind of in the journey of infrastructure as code. I'm trying to kind of push that in our environment. Um, but I think misconfigurations is kind of the, the, the bigger one. I'm trying to think of some others. But in your experience, does that seem to line up with, with your experience or have you had other experiences and other things from a infrastructure as code from a security perspective? Yeah, I think I think honestly, a lot of times misconfiguration is going to be your number one most often problem when it comes to infrastructure anyway, um, whether it's infrastructure as code or manually configured infrastructure. Um, the, the only change between the two is that with infrastructure as code, you can make more mistakes faster. That's a fair point. It's um, <laughs> a fair point. Um, and yeah, and really, in a lot of ways, most errors in some way boil down to uh, misconfiguration. So I, I think that's a, a pretty good catch-all for you know the, the most common problems that you see. It's just what kind of misconfiguration is where you get into the meat of it. Yeah, that's true. And, and I like your point too about because I think somebody at my at my company to offer that same point, which is you can mistakes are are exponentially amplified. <laughs> especially if you deploy something out to like a hundred servers and it's wrong. Um, you can really break a lot of stuff very quickly. So I think that's kind of a trade-off when we talk about infrastructure as code, um, you know, that we, we need to consider and kind of balance. So we're still relatively early in our journey. Um, but eventually, you know, that's something, you know, hopefully we don't encounter, (laughs) but, um, but I'd be curious too, in those types of situations, have either of you kind of found, you know, what's the best way to kind of handle making mistakes, you know, at a kind of a broader scale uh, when you have infrastructure as code? I think for, for on my side of things, uh, the easiest way to recover from mistakes being made is to make sure that the changes being rolled out are done done in a gradual pattern. Uh, you know, roll out to some sort of development platform first and then a staging environment and then finally to your production environment uh, and make sure that there's some sort of review, whether it's automated or manual, uh, in between each of those stages so that you have more opportunity to see the mistakes before they affect your customers rather than just your developers. Um, you know, the, the more you put your, your change management and your uh, automation all the way out to production right away, the more likely it is that a, you know, uh, a sleep deprived developer or someone who hasn't had their coffee yet 
or, you know, it's 7 p.m. on a Friday and I just need to get this one fix out before I go home for the weekend. Um, you know, the more that all goes out to production on yeah. its own, the more likely you are to affect your customers rather than just your internal staff. And there's there is this whole broader discussion between like, you know, the the no deploys on Friday uh, <laughs> camp and then the camp surrounding like uh everything should immediately go to production, you know, the full CI CD stack. Um, like there's, there's a huge sliding scale there that I don't know, even just week to week, I find myself in a different place on it because of, you know, no solution is right. It's just a question of what's right for your circumstances and what's right for your business. And I think that's a good point too. It's, it always depends. I know it's the very typical consultant answer, but but it really does depend. If if you're Netflix, yeah, you probably need to deploy all the time, it, you know, because that's I guess your their business model and all that. For us, to your point, we're probably doing no Friday rollouts, not during open enrollment because we're insurance, and so a lot more guardrails because we just don't need to be that agile. But I also do think though that we need to be. Uh, to keep up with, um, you know, to keep up with what's contemporary, because as I look to the future as well, too, if we want to bring on new talent to kind of keep pushing kind of the business agenda, we want to make sure we're using, you know, who wants to come into an organization that at least isn't using Git, you know, or doesn't have, you know, modern ways of doing things. We're not going to attract talent that way either. So I think that's also a good byproduct of having more contemporary ways of doing things. Definitely. I, I think that there is something to be said about developer experience, like from a, a hiring perspective. I've definitely worked with some clients while I was freelancing uh, where they would say they needed a, needed a developer. And I'd be like, okay. And they would like, what do you have? And putting together the pieces because, you know, the last person left or what have you um, was like being a detective. And then once you figure out all the pieces and you look at it, you're like, oh man, um, there was no infrastructure here. Like, and if there was, it's gone. Um, I think there's a, that that is definitely something that, um, as I, I recently start, uh, got a new job. And while I was looking, um, I found that most of my questions for employers were no longer about like, I guess before I never really had any questions. Like it <laughs> yeah. was just benefits and stuff like that. But all ended up being developer experience questions. Like, do you use version control? What's your CI CD? Like, are you like infrastructure as code? Where are you hosted? What tooling do you actually use? Um, how much free reign does a, a single developer have over like the different libraries or, or tooling that, that they're able to use? Um, and those really that those answers really determined like where I was interested in going. And I, I think the talent goes where the cool work mm-hmm. is, for lack of a better term. Oh, yeah. Um it, it, so it's a really interesting trade-off between like stability and then sometimes things I don't know, I don't want to say need to give, but sometimes things end up giving just to make the developers happy for the better or for the worse. And I think that's a really 
that that's not something they teach you in school. Like that's not that's not something you talk about. Yeah, where it's no, like agreed. A, as a business concept, you got to make sure your developers are happy <laughs> and make sure they're playing with the cool new things. No, I, <laughs> and I think that is important because even so, for us, we we actually swap development partners. So we we only have maybe. 20, 30% of our developers in-house at our company and 70 to 80% of it is actually outsourced to a strategic partner. And when we flip strategic partners, the original partner we had, very sharp, very good developers, but kind of more of the traditional waterfall, uh, you know, on subversion, sorry for anybody who likes subversion, gets the way to go, it, That just that world, you know, versus the new development partner that we had or that we brought on board, very kind of more bleeding edge, right? Not completely bleeding edge, but but definitely on Git, different repos, microservices architecture, uh, much more engaged developers. And, and that's important because they can attract really good talent and their developers are phenomenal. Um, and really infused, at least when you're looking at it right now on the other side, like on a, from a business or technology side, we wanted a development partner that could help us transform so that we can kind of have kind of the, the better processes, the better tools and technologies, because we want to make sure that we attract good talent, and even internally too, which um, we don't have any openings, but if, if there was any turnover, we definitely want to get developers that, that understand kind of the more modern languages, more modern ways of doing things. And to some degree, yeah, we, we kind of should cater and have fun projects and not just for developers, for but for any for any technology field, because otherwise people kind of get bored, and that's that's kind of a management thing to deal with. So I'm trying to find a balance, and I think Neil, you mentioned that you know the balance, or, or Joe, you might have um, stability versus kind of uh, you know kind of pushing the edge in terms of technology and other things, because you want to retain talent, but then not go too far, you know, where you know you're not able to to maintain that. Yeah, you're you're definitely right. Um, you know, it, it struck my interest that you said that only like twenty percent of your development team is in house. Yeah. <laughs> um, how like how does that really work out for your side of things? I guess both from a security perspective and from a management perspective, with most of your development team being not direct employees but consultants, contractors. Um, what are some of the trade-offs that you're making there? And what are some of the concerns that you have to address when it comes to like making sure that the people who are doing your development work are you know, meeting your, uh, your requirements, regardless of whether they are an employee or a contractor? No, that's a really good question. And we're, so the company I work at, we're an association for a, a dental company and we're, you know, we're really small at an association. Um, so so the, our leadership team, their viewpoint is we want core developers, but we want to have a partner that we can flex developers, right? So, so we kind of have our core kind of web properties and application offerings, right? And so we don't process insurance because we're in an association, but we do have several applications and systems that are used across the entire system. So they wanted to have the ability to flex up and down based off of projects. So we partnered with somebody, they're out of Cork, Ireland. So they're actually um, near shore, I guess, or offshore, whatever we call it. Um, but so we have a, a, a 
core set of developers out of Cork, but then we flex depending on projects. So I think if we didn't have all the 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 additional developers outside of the core team, we might be closer to like 40, 60, if that makes sense. But because my project is is now needing to flex and I need actually need a project manager, a tester, and two devs, you know, we kind of flex pretty high. So I'm actually my project and my product is actually requiring us to flex more. So we're actually like 20 to 80 because I'm I, I need them to to complete this project before the end of the year. So that was one of the reasons why we wanted to flex is we wanted kind of a 40-60-50-50 split, but giving us the ability to flex. Now, from a security perspective, that it was a concern of ours. So what we've done is we've actually looked, we actually run AWS workspaces. So we've actually provisioned AWS workspaces for our developers so that we kind of mitigate any issues. So one, we're not in GDPR because they're in Europe and we're in the US. So we kind of avoid that by them using our US-based systems and all of our data centers are in the the US. We kind of avoid that. So they can work on our stuff, no GDPR, no regulatory issues. But then we at the organization controls those systems so that if there's turnover or we move strategic partners, which we found from our previous partner was uh, a bit challenging, if it's in workspaces, we control everything, right? So it's in our stuff. So that's one way that we kind of mitigate some security issues there. Plus, we also have our security, I'm doing air quotes, kit on our workspaces so we can control that. Um, the final piece that we're concerned about is if there's turnover, that's the part, you know, I, I actually think maybe, hopefully nobody from my company is listening, but we probably should have a little bit more in-house developers and probably just have them remote, <laughs> you know, because even though my company is based in Chicago, I think getting remote talent to really fill those gaps instead of just locally sourcing them, which is easier in Chicago, but why not open it up, especially after coronavirus and all that? I think we need to find a better balance where they're in-house because then there's this whole notion of, well, they're contractors, but we want to talk to internal employees that, you know, that gets a little bit interesting, right? It's like, well, they're a partner but they're a developer. So that one, I still trying to sort out. Yeah. I will say that one of the things that kind of makes it difficult to find uh, remote development uh, kind of makes it hard to find remote developers is you're competing a lot of times with San Francisco based companies and New York based companies. So if your company is not, willing to put up the uh, the salaries that'll meet those mm. needs for the people working for companies in those areas it's a lot harder to find people who are who are willing to to take that on yeah so i guess that's part of the reason why places are still leaning towards uh still leaning towards the uh the in office thing if you're not in one of those areas already yeah no that's true i, I know at my company especially I'm actually a remote worker too. I don't, I forgot to mention that. Neil, I know from the the previous podcast I listened to, I know that you're, you, you used to have the hour and a half commute and I did, boy, I did too. Geez, door to door, it'd be an hour, 40 minutes in Chicago. And thank God I don't have to do that anymore. Uh, but I think hopefully that tide will start to turn. And even in my own company, I'm a remote worker being a transplant here in Canfield and around Youngstown. And I travel every two to three weeks, not right now. Maybe in the future, it might be less now. 
but I, hopefully that kind of opens up the doors, uh, you know, to get folks that, that are really talented in other areas that are not Chicago because they are expensive. And that's partly why we looked in the Ireland market because there's really strong devs there and at, at the more cost effective, right? But I know there's talent in many other areas in the US that potentially we could source. And I'll see how that goes. You know, after my projects are over, I still want to retain developers on my product team, you know, and whether that comes out of, you know, the Ireland of the, our partnership or if we look to bring them on internally. Uh, full time. Yeah, I definitely want to start looking remote. At least that's what I'll be advocating anyway. Okay. Yeah. Um, you know, that kind of brings me back to uh, uh, out of the technical discussion a little bit into the uh, the discussion of your history with the area. You said before your transplant, you grew up in and around Chicago and your wife's from this area. Um, maybe could you talk a little bit about what led to your decision to move uh, back to this area with your wife and uh, what kind of has, has brought you into the Youngstown area? Oh, certainly. Yeah. And I think the, it'll be a, a recurring theme in, in the previous podcast, which is really it's, a, it's around family that brought me back here. Um, my wife's family is, or her, both of her parents are a little bit older and they've been doing the commute for the last nine and a half, 10 years to Chicago, which isn't a bad drive. It's six and a half hours. And if you have kids, I have two, might as well add another hour and a half to that, you know, potty breaks and all that other stuff. Um, but as they got older, you know, we, we were at a point where my kids are under, you know, they're five and two, one's going to start kindergarten <laughs> nicely in all the same schools that, you know, in Canfield where my, my wife and her sister grew up. You know, why not move now while her parents are getting older and before the kids start kindergarten? Let's just move them back to where she grew up, have them start school, start to make friends. So we're not trying to pull them out of school mid, you know, mid, mid through the school year in Chicago. Um, you know, let's come here. And, and the Youngstown area in Canfield has been is a fantastic area. I, you know, coming here for the past 10 years, it's been great. And with better family support here. It's, you know, really looking forward to it and a much better pace of life. So that that's kind of the draw for us here as family. Okay. Yeah, I can, I can get that. Um, so, I mean, it sounds like your kids aren't in school yet. So uh, you, you have the opportunity to not have to deal with uh, all the challenges that come with trying to have kids in school right now with the quarantine. Yes. Um, I was, I was actually thinking of asking like how Canfield is handling that. Uh, I know the school district here is not doing so with grace. Uh, Canfield's but. not, I don't know. I, re I read an article where I think some parents in the Canfield area is, you know, starting to express a little discontent with, you know, how the school system is managing it. Um, but, but to your point, my kids are in daycare and my wife's considered essential workers. So it's actually been pretty helpful. All of my other coworkers across, mostly in Chicago and across the U.S., they don't have daycare, and so you know, at least my meetings, there's no kids in the background. It's a little bit risky, which I know is kind of a kind of a t touchy subject, depending on how much risk I want to introduce to my kids going to, to daycare with coronavirus. But I've got no other choice. Uh, you know, it's either that or my kids are screaming and one's trying to potty train, which is horrible <laughs> when you're in a meeting. You know. 
if you guys have kids, you know, kids are going to win out, especially if they're potty training. Um, so you gotta, you gotta deal with that. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, I think that's really it for the questions I had for you. Joe, did you have any more questions for Paul, either uh, in regards to his history in the area or uh, on the technical side of things? Let's see. I was making a little list while y'all were talking, see if anything wasn't covered. I think that covers about anything. I'm glad we brought it back to Youngstown at the end. I, I think that's um, a really good note to, to end it on. Um, with that being said, Paul, is there anything that uh, you wanted to talk about that we didn't get to or something you're working on or, or participating in that you'd like to give a shout out to? Uh, nothing in particular. Um yeah, shoot. I know this is probably a question I wasn't planning on, <laughs> but I probably should have. No, nothing in particular. I, I, I think, um, you know, I, I think definitely development work uh, is something that would just continue. So it, for anybody who doesn't have any kind of hand in doing any type of development work or even like a test lab in AWS, Azure, or GCP, probably the one thing I would say probably is this is definitely dive into coding in any form or fashion, even if it's just maintaining basic scripting skills, because at, at this point, that's all I can manage or some serverless stuff, which is I'm starting to toy with. Definitely continue to do some type of development work throughout your career. It's something I echo to everybody on the technical teams that I work with at my company or anybody I mentor, at least do some coding. It goes a long way, no matter where you're at. My wife even does it. She works at a manufacturing plant, but they have machines there that requires coding. So it's definitely a useful skill in the technology field, no matter where you go. Awesome. That, I completely agree. And I'm hoping that someone listening will hopefully be inspired. Um, Neil, do you want to help us sign off? Sure. Uh, you know, Paul, I'd really like to thank you for being on with us today. Uh, it was a great conversation. I'm glad to hear that you're uh, taking well to the area after being here for a few months. And, uh, you know, I just also would like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in for yet another episode and have a Appreciate great it. day. Thank everybody. you very much. Take care. Thank you, Paul.